Hey everybody, it's Cody. We wanted to give you guys a sneak peek of our Patreon series that we have going on right now, Sinister, The True Story of H.H. Holmes. So if you like this episode, go to patreon.com slash American Hauntings and sign up and you can get even more episodes every week. And now, on with the show. It's the early morning hours of August 31st, 1888, and a fog rolls along the streets and into the alleyways of London's East End. A woman walks down a dark street alone. The sound of music from one of the dance halls can be heard in the distance. There's a sound of a man calling out and a woman laughing, but those sounds are far away from this lonely street. The only nearby sound is the tapping of the woman's worn-down shoes as she walks along the cobblestones. A few coins are clenched in her hand with which she hopes to pay for her lodging for the night. But then there's another sound. The light footsteps of someone else, a man. The woman turns to face him, but before she can get a look at his face, his hands close around her neck and they begin to squeeze. She gasps for air as the man's gloved hands tighten their grip. Her vision flickers, then fades, and everything goes black as she slumps to the pavement. The man roughly lets her fall and then bends down over her, pulling away her clothes. A hand reaches into his coat and emerges with something long, silvery, and sharp. The blade of the knife reflects the dim gaslight from a nearby lamp, and he begins his bloody work. That man will soon be known as Jack the Ripper. The murders that have been attributed to him have become known throughout the world and remain some of the most infamous unsolved murders in history. Before he vanished without a trace, at least five women met their end by the blade of this unknown man, and some believe the number of his victims may be even higher. His first, though, was Marianne Nichols, who was killed at 3.40 a.m. on August 31st in the Whitechapel district of London's East End. At that time, Whitechapel was overflowing with immigrants and refugees from Ireland, Russia, and other areas of Eastern Europe. By 1888, more than 80,000 people were living in this small neighborhood, and with work and housing conditions worsening, most were plunged into poverty. More than half the children born in the East End died before they were five years old, and robbery, violence, and alcoholism were commonplace. These conditions drove many women to prostitution to survive. It was estimated that there were at least 62 brothels and 1,200 women working as prostitutes in Whitechapel. There were also about 8,500 people sleeping in common lodging houses in Whitechapel each night making them essentially homeless. The cost of a bed for one night was roughly four pence. Working as a prostitute was often the only way a woman could come up with the coins to snag one of these first-come, first-served beds for the night. Marianne Nichols was one of those women. She was a native of London who spent a good deal of the 1880s driftless and alone. Her marriage to a man named William Nichols had fallen apart after the birth of their sixth child when William began sleeping with a neighbor woman. Mary Ann began drinking and was unable to stop. 
She left home and began a dismal journey through London's workhouses and hospitals, sleeping rough in Trafalgar Square with countless other homeless people and ending up as a prostitute in the East End when she reached the end of the line. By August 31st, 1888, she was stumbling toward a lodging house, having earned and then drunk away the four pence she needed several times that day. And then she ran into an acquaintance at 2.30 a.m. at the corner of Junction Street and Whitechapel Road. It was the last time she was seen by anyone but her killer. Just over an hour later, two men walking west along Bucks Row saw what they thought might be an abandoned canvas cover lying on the street. Closer inspection, though, revealed it to be the body of a woman. Her throat was cut and she was lying in a pool of blood. But it was only when her clothing was removed at the local mortuary where the horrible incisions on Marianne's body revealed. Her abdomen had been sliced so deeply that her intestines threatened to burst out of her. The police were stunned by the unusual degree of brutality. It was unlike what they were used to seeing in this part of the city. But they had no idea then how common it would turn out to be. One of the most common misconceptions about the five, as the Ripper's historically accepted victims have been dubbed, is that they were all prostitutes. They weren't. The tragic homeless of Whitechapel far outnumbered the sex workers who lived out their terrible lives there. Annie Chapman, the Ripper's second victim, had once lived a better life. Far from the slums of Whitechapel, she had spent her youth and later part of her married life in Windsor, not far from the royal castle. She'd never been wealthy, but she'd had a decent life. But somewhere along the way, Annie's future veered off course, and she became estranged from her family and addicted to drink. By 1888, she was isolated, starving, and suffering from chronic illnesses. On September 5th, 1888, she got into a physical brawl with another woman, Eliza Cooper, over a disputed bit of soap. She was badly beaten, and her corpse would later show signs of it. Her body was discovered on September 8th, just after sunrise, in an unsecured yard behind 29 Hanbury Street. It's believed she went there looking for a place to sleep. Like Marianne Nichols, her throat had been cut. Annie's abdomen had been sliced open, and a section of the flesh from her stomach was pulled away from her body and placed over her left shoulder. Another section of skin and flesh had been placed over her right shoulder. An autopsy also revealed that her uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina had been removed. And just like before, her killer left no clues behind. The Ripper's next two victims, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, were both killed on the same night, or rather during the early morning hours of September 30th, 1888. Elizabeth had ended up on the uncertain streets of Whitechapel after an unfortunate early life and the death of her husband. The couple had attempted to prosper in the hostile environment of the East End by opening a coffee shop, but it closed after she became a widow, leaving her homeless. She was last seen on Burner Street on the night before her murder, dodging an evening rain. The next sighting of her had been by a grocery man whose horse shied away from something in the street outside of Dutfield's yard. He got down from his wagon, lit a match, and peered closely, finding a woman with a sliced throat. 
No other damage had been done to her body, which led some police officers to surmise that she hadn't been a victim of the same killer or that he'd been interrupted in his work. It was the latter that was likely the case. The Ripper soon struck again, and this time, he took his time. On September 29th, Catherine Eddowes had been arrested for public drunkenness after a police officer found her passed out in the street. After a few hours at Bishopgate Police Station, Catherine was slightly recovered from her binge and was ready to be released. If only she'd stayed behind bars, her life might have been saved. Instead, though, she walked out of the station at just after 1 a.m. and started walking in the direction of Mitre Square, where her body would be discovered less than an hour later. The state of her corpse was much worse than that of Elizabeth Stride. Her throat had been cut from ear to ear and her abdomen sliced apart by one long incision. Her intestines had been pulled out and placed over her right shoulder. One section of intestine had been completely detached and placed between her body and left arm. Her left kidney and most of her uterus were also removed. Her face was disfigured with her nose cut off, her cheeks slashed, and two cuts carefully removing her eyelids. Two triangular incisions, which pointed toward Catherine's eyes, had also been carved on each of her cheeks. A severed piece of one earlobe was found inside of her clothing. The police surgeon who conducted the autopsy stated that in his opinion, the mutilations would have taken at least five full minutes to complete by a man with surgical knowledge and medical skill. Well, a team of detectives fanned out from Mitre Square, working their way backward into Whitechapel. They discovered two clues in their search. One of them was a bloody piece of apron that might have belonged to Catherine, but no one knows for sure. For this reason, whenever you see it announced that someone has revealed the identity of Jack the Ripper based on DNA from the apron, take it with a very large grain of salt. The apron may not have been Catherine's, and if it was, it was badly handled by the police at the time who had no concept of dealing with forensic evidence. But I digress. In the alleyway where the apron was found, graffiti was written on the wall with chalk. At first glance, it appeared to be anti-Semitic and read, the Jewes are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Now, you might have noticed that I pronounced Jews rather strangely, but I did that because of the way it was spelled. J-U-W-E-S. Was it bad spelling or something else? Because there actually is a word that's spelled that way, but I'll come back to that. Initially, some believe the message implied that a Jew or Jews in general were responsible for the murders. This kind of graffiti was actually pretty common in Whitechapel. The influx of immigrant Jews had led to a lot of prejudice against them. So was it written by the killer when he dropped the apron or did the two so-called clues have nothing to do with the murders and just happened to be there? Police Commissioner Charles Warren ordered the writing to be washed off the wall before dawn. It was assumed he did this to prevent an anti-Semitic riot in the East End. But he might have recognized the word Jewez for what it could have been, spelled correctly and not a mistaken spelling for Jews. 
It's been suggested that the word was actually referring to the three killers of Hiram Abif, a legendary figure in the world of Freemasonry. This particular phrase would only have significance to a high-level Freemason, like Charles Warren, and was a clue that a fellow Mason, like himself, committed the murders. It's been suggested that Warren, based on the rules of the secret society, would have had to protect this man until he could be stopped in a non-public way. But yeah, we're getting off track here. That just happens to be my own pet theory, so <laughs> we need to move on. The point is that the apron and the graffiti may be important or just as easily may mean nothing at all. So just keep that in mind. By the night of the double murder, nearly everyone in London knew the killer's name was Jack the Ripper. That was a name that came from the newspapers. I mean, he needed a name. This was the first major murder story that had international appeal. So journalists tried everything to keep the story on the front pages, including giving him a moniker that sounded shocking. As the murders were being reported, the police and newspapers and others received hundreds of letters about the case. Some letters were well-intentioned offers of advice as to how to catch the killer, but the vast majority were either hoaxes or generally useless. Dozens of these letters claim to have been written by the killer himself, but only three of them have been taken seriously. The Dear Boss letter, the Saucy Jack postcard, and the From Hell letter. The Dear Boss letter was sent to the Central News Agency on September 25th and was forwarded to Scotland Yard. At first, the police assumed it was a hoax, but when Catherine Eddowes was found three days later after the letter's postmark with a section of an ear cut from her body, the promise of the letter writer to, quote, clip the lady's ears off got their attention. But the letter writer, who signed his name as Jack the Ripper for the first time, promised to send some ears to the police, but he never did. The Saucy Jack postcard was postmarked on October 1st and was also sent to the Central News Agency. It arrived that same day and made mention of the double event, the two murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. But no one knows for sure if this was written in advance of the murders or after taking advantage of the publicity to claim Saucy Jack had killed the two women. The From Hell letter was definitely the most, well, disgusting of the three. It was sent to George Lusk, the leader of a Whitechapel vigilance committee that was also hunting the killer. And it was sent on October 16th. The handwriting and the style of this letter is unlike the other two. And it arrived with a small box, which George opened and discovered contained half of a human kidney. The writer claimed he'd, quote, fried Nate the other half. Some say the kidney belonged to Catherine Eddowes, while others dismiss it as a practical joke. What we do know is that the kidney was examined by Dr. Thomas Openshaw of the London Hospital, who determined that it was human and from the left side of a body, but nothing else. Years later, the police suspected that the first two letters, the letter and postcard, were written by a journalist, coining the killer's name and keeping the stories alive. But no one could ever debunk the ominous from hell letter, and it remains a mystery to this day, just like the identity of the killer himself.
Of all the Ripper's victims, his fifth and likely last, Mary Jane Kelly, remains the most mysterious. Her death made her famous, but her backstory is mostly unknown. The photograph of Mary Jane's corpse on her bed with almost everything about her that made her human entirely gone is the last reminder of the Ripper's killings. In a break from his previous habits, the Ripper went inside to kill, and he apparently took the time to satisfy his murderous lusts because he knew he wouldn't be interrupted. Mary had been living in a squalid room at 13 Miller's Court with Joseph Barnett, a fishmonger whom she had a relationship with. But Joseph had moved out a few weeks earlier after learning that Mary had returned to prostitution to make money. Living upstairs from Mary's flat, Elizabeth Prater heard a cry of murder at about 4 a.m. on November 9th, but she did nothing about it. Mary's lifeless, mutilated body was discovered seven hours later. Mary's face had been hacked beyond all recognition. Her throat had been severed down to the spine and her abdomen was emptied of all of its organs. Her uterus, kidneys, and one breast had been placed beneath her head and the other viscera from her body had been placed at her feet. Sections of her abdomen and thighs were on a table next to the bed. The killer had removed her heart and apparently had taken it with him when he left the scene. One police inspector who later reviewed the case concluded that the gore-soaked scene at Miller Court had finally broken the mind of the killer. And perhaps it did. It's certainly true to say that nothing that it could be compared with happened again. This meant that the identity of Jack the Ripper died with Mary Kelly, but that hasn't stopped anyone from trying to figure out who he was. Most researchers believe that all five murders were the work of a single killer. There were other murders, as many as six more, that occurred in Whitechapel at this time, but most don't feel they can be strongly connected to the five. Others argue that the idea of five victims is a myth and that only three of the murders, Nichols, Chapman, and Eddowes, were committed by the same man. And, well, still others say there was no Jack the Ripper at all just a group of unrelated murders that were all blamed on one man, a shadowy figure that was never caught. Even so, the search for Jack the Ripper, the lone crazed killer, has become a cottage industry in the century and a third since the murders occurred. There have been a lot of theories about his identity over the years. Some claim it was a Whitechapel undertaker named Robert Mann who examined the bodies after they'd been found. Sir Melville McNaughton, the assistant commissioner of the London Metropolitan Police, claimed to know the identity of the Ripper. He named Montague John Druitt, a country doctor's son and a young barrister who inexplicably drowned himself in the River Thames in early December 1888. Another leading suspect was an artist named Walter Sickert. He took a keen interest in the crimes and told friends he believed he'd lodged in a room used by the killer because his landlady suspected a previous lodger of the murders. Even though his name has come up repeatedly, remember the fake diaries and the claims by Patricia Cornwell? Yeah, evidence shows he actually spent most of the fall of 1888 outside of the UK. Some have also accused Prince Albert Victor, the Duke of Clarence, and the grandson of Queen Victoria of being the Ripper. 
He was alleged to have had a child with a woman who lived in Whitechapel, and the belief is that the royal family and the government tried to remove any evidence of the child by killing it and anyone who knew about it, which didn't necessarily make the Duke the killer, but definitely the one responsible. And there were butchers, doctors, and madmen also accused of the crimes. The theories just seem to have gotten wilder as the years have passed. There's even one outlandish claim that novelist Lewis Carroll, you know, the guy who wrote Alice in Wonderland, was the killer because he made anagrams of Jack the Ripper in his books. But not so wild were the stories of a man who had traveled to England from America arriving in London just two months before the first of the five murders occurred. This man stayed near Whitechapel, so he was familiar with the area. He was also trained in medicine, so he had all the necessary skills to find a woman's organs and remove them quickly, and the Whitechapel murders may not have been the only ones he committed. But he was never charged, or even suspected for the killings. In fact, his name wouldn't be linked to them until much later when evidence of other crimes he committed emerged. And if you're thinking you know who this man is, there's a good chance you're right. Welcome to Dead Men Do Tell Tales, a special spin-off series of the American Hauntings podcast. Each season, we delve into a single mysterious story from the dark side of our nation's past. As a Patreon supporter, you'll join us as we take a trip back in time and reveal that the good old days weren't always good, and the blood spilled by murder, mayhem, homicide, and hauntings as always stain the bright and shiny days of yesterday. This is the seventh episode of our latest season, Sinister, the true story of H.H. Holmes. But as you've already discovered, this is an unusual episode. But I felt we couldn't go any further with our story until we addressed the links between Holmes and some of the most infamous murders in history. Before the belated open, if you were thinking you knew the name of the American Jack the Ripper suspect and you were thinking of the name Francis J. Tumblety, well, you'd be correct. Suspicion by police officials that Dr. Francis J. Tumblety may have been Jack the Ripper emerged in 1913. Interest in the killings was still high and cold case detectives were still looking for suspects. Tumblety's name came up because he hated women had medical skills, and was arrested around the time of the murders for what were called unnatural offenses. He skipped bail and fled England, and the murders, well, they came to an end. Well, Francis was technically not an American. He was born in Canada in 1833, but moved with his family to Rochester, New York, when he was very young. Although uneducated, he was clever and used skills he learned to make a living mixing patent medicines. It's unlikely any of his snake oil cures actually worked, but he did start calling himself a doctor, and he claimed to possess, quote, Indian and Oriental secrets of healing. He was charming and handsome, and he used these attributes, along with a lot of lies and boasting, to get into the finest hotels, wear the finest clothes, attend the best parties, and live well beyond his means. When bills came due, he simply skipped town without paying them. I know, if this is starting to sound familiar, right? Anyway, in the late 1850s and early 1860s, Francis was living in Washington, D.C., rubbing shoulders with the wealthy and well-connected in the capital city. 
It's said that it was during this time that his deep-seated hatred for women began to be revealed. During a dinner party that he hosted one night in 1861, Francis was asked casually by one of his guests why he had invited any single women to the gathering. Tumblety replied that women were nothing more than cattle and that he would rather give a friend poison than to see him with a woman. He then began to speak about the evils of women in general, especially prostitutes, which must have come as quite a shock to the upper society neighbors gathering in his home that evening. Well, an attorney, C.A. Dunham, who attended the party that night, later remarked that it was generally believed that Francis had been tricked into marriage by a woman who was later revealed to be a prostitute. This was thought to have sparked his hatred of all women, but none of the guests had any idea just how far his feelings of animosity went until Francis offered to show them his collection. He led his guests into a back study of the house where he kept his anatomical museum. Here they were shown row after row of jars containing women's uteruses. You can't make this stuff up. In 1863, Francis visited St. Louis and he later complained that he was arrested for what he called putting on airs and being caught in quasi-military dress. Now, this was during the Civil War, and St. Louis, which had remained loyal to the Union, was surrounded by Confederate-leaning Missouri. The real reason that Francis was arrested during these turbulent times was for being a Confederate sympathizer. Well, in 1865, he was arrested again on a serious charge that amounted to an early example of biological warfare. It was a plot to infect blankets sold to Union troops with yellow fever. In this case, though, Francis was falsely accused. An alias that he used was close to that of a real doctor involved. He was sent to Washington and locked up until the situation could be cleared up. After the war, Francis continued to swindles, making several trips to Europe during the 1870s and 1880s. In the summer of 1888, he landed in London and took up lodgings on Batty Street in the heart of Whitechapel. This was within easy walking distance of all the crime scenes. He became a suspect to the police in 1913, as mentioned earlier, after they learned of a visit that he made to a pathological museum in London, where he inquired about any uteruses that might be for sale. Well, this put them on alert because some of the medical examiners in 1888 stated that they believed the killer had medical knowledge. They assumed Tumblety was an actual doctor, and they didn't know at the time that he had a collection of uteruses back home. He was apparently looking for more to add to his very weird collection. On November 7th, two days before Marianne Kelly's murder, Francis was arrested. It wasn't for murder, but for unnatural offenses, which was usually a reference to homosexuality in Victorian times. We do know that he was released on bail, but we don't know when. Some say it was November 16th, well after the murder, but others claim it was November 8th. Thousands of police records were destroyed in the London Blitz during World War II, including these. And that's a bit of a problem, since the entire theory about whether he was Jack the Ripper hinges on the date when Francis was released from jail. Well, whatever the date was, he skipped bail and vanished, allegedly taking a steamer to France on November 24th and then returning to the United States from there. Um, but the story of Dr. Tumblety, it's not quite over. 
For years after his return to America, Francis continued moving around the country, living in hotels, staying ahead of his creditors, and leaving little record of himself behind. He finally landed in one place in St. Louis in April 1903 where he checked himself into St. John's Hospital and Dispensary at 23rd and Locust Streets. According to accounts, Francis was suffering from a long and painful illness, although it was never identified. Those who believe he was the Ripper say it might have been syphilis, which he contracted from a prostitute many years before, creating his hatred of women and sex workers. But whatever his illness, Francis remained at the hospital until his death on May 28, 1903 and things keep being strange after that. Court records show that Francis left an estate of more than $135,000 when he died. The hospital received 450 of that for room expenses, medical tests, and care, while the rest of his estate, aside from costs to a St. Louis undertaker, went to his niece, Mary Fitzsimmons of Rochester, New York. There was only one challenge to the will, and it turned out to be a rather strange, especially because of Tumblety's very clear feelings on the subject. The challenge had come from an attorney from Baltimore named Joseph Kemp. He claimed that Francis had another will, written in 1901, that left $1,000 from his estate to the Baltimore Home for Fallen Women. It was a charity that helped sex workers start a new life. Well, the claim was thrown out of court, but it's an interesting final note to the life of a man who some say was the most infamous killer of prostitutes in history. But was he really? The jury is still out on that one. If Francis Tumblety was really released from jail on November 8th, the night before Mary Kelly was killed, then it's possible that he was the man the police were looking for. Is it likely? No, but it is possible. Unfortunately, we can't say the same for another American who has, in recent years, also been accused of being Jack the Ripper. His name is the one that many of you were probably thinking of before I introduced you to Francis J. Tumblety. His name, of course, is H.H. H. Holmes. But unlike Francis Tumblety, it was impossible, no matter what you may have read or seen on television, for Holmes to have been the infamous killer. As we've already mentioned, Holmes didn't kill because of some sexual compulsion. He was not a madman or a psychopath. He was a sociopath or perhaps even pure evil. He thought only of himself. He had no conscience, but he committed murder when he believed it was necessary. When someone was no longer useful, was a threat in some way, or simply because they had something he wanted. The Ripper murders were maniacal slaughters, and the bodies of the five were left on display for the public and the police to see. They were not even remotely similar to the murders committed by Holmes. His murders were secret homicides that he took great care to conceal. He didn't want the bodies of his victims to be discovered. He took great care to dispose of them, burning them, hiding them, or even turning them into medical specimens to hide any evidence that could point his way. After he was eventually captured, he told countless lies about his crimes and the number of people he killed. We'll never know the extent of Holmes's crimes because the last thing he wanted to do was put his victims on display and show them off to the public, the police, and the press. Holmes may have been a monster, but he was not the same monster who committed the murders in Whitechapel. Even at the time of his arrest, the police never suspected him of being Jack the Ripper. 
He was linked mostly by rumor to a lot of murders he didn't commit. One of them was the murder of a woman named Crone who was killed in November 1893 in Wilmette and not far from where his wife Myrta lived. A police inspector named Fitzpatrick scoffed at the suggestion that Holmes had committed the crime. He told reporters, also mentioning a famous Chicago crime of the era, the murder of Dr. Cronin, that... That theory is ridiculous. The murder of Mrs. Crone was done in too crude a manner for Holmes to have had anything to do with it. He was a scientific criminal and would never think of engaging in a burglary or shooting a person in cold blood. You might as well connect him to the Cronin murder or even with the Jack the Ripper horrors in London, England. No, Holmes had nothing to do with the case. But I know what you're thinking. These are just opinions. The police never connected Holmes to Jack the Ripper in the 1890s, and as you can see from what I've already told you about Holmes' motives, I don't think we can compare the Ripper murders to what Holmes did. The methods seem to be very different from one another, but again, that's my opinion. I can scoff at the idea as much as I want, but do I have any evidence that proves Holmes wasn't Jack the Ripper? Yeah, it turns out that I do. You're probably wondering how the suggestion that H.H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper got started in the first place. It wasn't by police detectives, historical scholars, true crime buffs, or really anyone investigating the case. It came from a novel. Yeah, that's right, a work of pure fiction. Maybe it was the writer of the book that helped to give the theory more substance than it should have had. The book, called Bloodstains, was written by Jeff Mudgett, a great-great-grandson of Holmes, via Robert, the son he had with his first wife, Clara. In the novel, Mudgett learns about his ancestor and discovers Holmes's diaries, from which he learns that Holmes escaped execution and lived to be nearly 100, using drugs he developed to maintain his youth. And oh yeah, while reading the diaries, he also happens to notice that Holmes's handwriting matches the writing in the Ripper letters that were sent to the press and George Lusk in 1888. Yeah, it's not a particularly great book, but in the wake of books like The Devil in the White City, which had helped to make Holmes widely popular all over again, people mistook this novel for nonfiction. Now, Mudgett freely admitted it wasn't real and the diaries were just a plot device. But then he started actually pushing the theory that Holmes was the Ripper, which confused things even more. It wasn't long before he ended up in a limited documentary series called American Ripper, which made things even worse. One thing you learn when dealing with television and documentaries is that the creator of the program can skew the story to turn into anything he wants it to be. Well, in the end, the show never proved Holmes was the Ripper, but it never put much effort into telling the truth either. Because the truth is that in 1888, Holmes never made it any closer to London than New Hampshire when he made a trip there to visit members of his family. But as we often find with Holmes, it's hard for many people to let truth get in the way of a good story. But what about that evidence I promised? Well, as we know, the Ripper murders occurred in the Whitechapel district of London's East End. All of them took place between the end of August and early November, 1888. So where was Holmes during this time? Well, first, while there's no record of him leaving the country, that's that's still kind of vague. So we have to go with what we do know and with what we can prove. 
Holmes's daughter, Lucy, which he had with his second wife, Murda, was born in Inglewood on July 4th, 1889. While there is, of course, no record of exactly when she was conceived, we do know what he was doing, or I guess you could say who he was doing, sorry, nine months earlier in August 1888. On October 9th, 1888, right in the middle of the murders, Holmes registered to vote in Inglewood. The court clerk wrote in the names in the voter rolls, so it's not his signature, but by law, he had to be there in person to register. So we know exactly where Holmes was on that day. In the summer and fall of 1888, Holmes was also dealing with three lawsuits in Chicago. He was being sued by Simon Wexel, a drugstore supplier, George Kimball, a glass dealer, and Etna Iron and Steel, who'd provided construction and materials for the castle the year before. And there was one meeting with his attorney that we know occurred in late September, or even at the worst, early October. We know this because on September 24th, Aetna Iron and Steel filed a lengthy affidavit about their business with Holmes, which Holmes had to answer to within 20 days. His attorney tried to object to this, but the court denied it. So in accordance with the ruling, Holmes's answers were filed with the court on October 12, 1888. This means that Holmes had to have been in Chicago between September 24th and October 12th. Two of the Ripper's victims, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, were both killed on September 30th. So there's no way that Holmes could have been the killer. You didn't just hop on a plane back then and jet home. A trip from London to Chicago would have been by boat and train and would have taken at least a couple of weeks, if not longer. I'm the first to admit that we'll never know the entire truth about H.H. Holmes, the castle, or the murders he committed, but we can say one thing for certain. He wasn't Jack the Ripper. And with that, we bring part seven of Sinister to what may be, to some of you, a disappointing end. But I promise to bring you the truth, or as close to the truth as I can find when it comes to H.H. Holmes, and this was something, mostly thanks to TV, that we needed to delve into. So thanks for listening to this rather odd episode, and be sure to come back next week when we pick up where we left off in the life and crimes of H.H. Holmes. Dead Men Do Tell Tales, the Patreon-only podcast created by American Hauntings, is written and performed by Troy Taylor, and it's produced and edited by Cody Back. Thanks again for listening, and we hope that you'll help us spread the word about this bonus podcast to your friends and encourage them to support American Hauntings for our future shows, podcasts, and events. <laughs> <laughs>